Hi everyone, this is Sophia Ustefan and I am the host of the Diasfero podcast. This podcast is for all folks from all walks of life to share their ethnic stories and any relevant topics that are important to them. If you feel led to share your story, please reach out to diasfetopodcast at gmail.com. Hey y'all, so today we have Vannery Kong with us. She is a research fellow at the Cambodian Institute for Cooperation and Peace, where she specializes in her research in U.S.-Indo-Pacific defense policies and U.S. and Southeast Asian relations. She is also the founder and president of the U.S. ASEAN Youth Council and United States Country Director of the ASEAN Youth Organization, where she's leading to advance U.S. interests within Southeast Asia. Throughout the podcast, she says ASEAN, which is an acronym for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. In this episode, we get to hear Vannery's story about being biracial and what it means for her to be both Black and Cambodian. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to partake in this opportunity to contribute to all your great series so far. Mm, Thank you. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. So hello, everyone. My name is Vannery Kong. I'm currently a graduate student at Harvard University, and I'm pursuing a master's in international relations with a concentration in national security. Um, Currently, I'm a research assistant for Professor Milosevic at Princeton University, focusing on counterterrorism and homeland security. And I'm also a research fellow for the Cambodian Institute for Cooperation and Peace. And um, right now, I'm more focused on um, U.S. interests in Southeast Asia. Wow, thanks for sharing all of that. And how do you identify yourself ethnically or culturally? I think ethnically, I would just mostly just say I'm Cambodian and African American, but um, I guess if I'm filling out the U.S. census, I typically just put other because I just feel like I don't want to choose between um, mm-hmm. one or the other. Yeah, yeah, you make a good point because you're both. <laughs> yeah, uh, and what's what is you are your family's migration story? Yeah, I'd be happy to share this. Um, this actually, my family's migration story is what led me to go into U.S. foreign policy. So, mm-hmm. my grandfather worked as an accountant for the U.S. Embassy in Phnom Penh under the Long Nol administration, and he got to hear through the grapevine about um, about what was going on, especially before the bombings came over. Mm-hmm. And so, um, unfortunately, like he still, uh, my family still got caught in the crossfire. So, um, and at the time my grandmother was a, um, she was a doctor for the Cambodian army, but she was like the midwife. So um, they did end up, uh, my family did end up getting captured by the Khmer Rouge and my mom and my family actually went through the concentration camps, but eventually um, my grandmother was able to negotiate with the Khmer Rouge soldiers because she was able to um, provide medical relief all the stories that you hear about the Kairu soldiers having, you know, wives or girlfriends that might have kids. Um, so they walked for three days through the forest into the, you know, the popular Kaoyidong uh, refugee camp in Thailand. And from there, the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Relief Services um, picked up my family. Um, and uh, my family went to the Philippines first and they flew and landed um, in Chicago. But I, um, and then they moved to Indianapolis, which is where I'm originally from. So that's kind of how we kind of got moved to the U.S., um, to the Midwest. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And are you second gen or 1.5? Um, so I definitely consider myself second gen. I was actually born in Fresno, but um, but yeah, my parents ended up moving back home to Indianapolis where I was raised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And you said that you grew up in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Could you, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so my um, my background in Indianapolis, um, so my parents ended up divorcing when I was really young. So um, my mom remarried and then my father remarried. So um, it's really interesting on my dad's side. Uh, they joke about me being the Asian one and my baby sister is actually half Mexican. Uh-huh. And so there's like these jokes about like our family being multicultural. But um, yeah, my grandparents and like a, like a couple of my other aunts um, they live in a very small town called Elkhart, which is like about 45 minutes outside of mm-hmm. South Bend. And um, I just remember every weekend um, going to uh, to go visit them. But as far as being accepted in Indianapolis, it was it was definitely interesting because it felt like I feel like the sentiments in Indiana where there were only three um, racial narratives being mm. black, white, or Latina. And they, um, because I can pass, they always used to think I was either Puerto Rican and Black or Dominican. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times um, they were also confused about my Asian identity that I shared. It was even to the point where when I first trans, because my mom remarried, I had to move schools. Um, well, not that far. It was like a, um, um, we moved from like the north side to the west side. But I remember they thought that I was Mexican. So they put me in ESL classes because they assumed based off of what I looked like. And I remember oh my, my mom gosh. coming up to the school being so mad saying she's American. Like she was oh. born and speaks English. Um, wow. But yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think for most of like the multiracial backgrounds that you hear, I definitely shared it. I definitely had faced racism from the Black community and the Asian community. I definitely had my fair share of uh, extreme racism, but I never let that deter me or try to make me feel any less Asian than um, my full Asian counterparts, um, if anything. Um, and I think what's also interesting too, when I um, I did my undergrad at Indiana University, um, I think it wasn't until I was in college that I realized that there was this like social hierarchy mm-hmm. in the Asian community. Mm-hmm. Um, even learning about the, the conflict between the Cambodians and the Filipinos mm-hmm. or or even just really, really um, facing um, colors. I and mean, then even just growing up hearing in the Cambodian community, hearing about anti-Vietnamese sentiments. Yes. Anti-Black sentiments. And not even realized until I got a lot older that I was facing that as well. So once um, Stop Asian Hate came out, having these conversations with my parents saying, you know, you know, these these statements that are being said to me, I shouldn't just sweep them under the rug and just deal with it just because it's family. You know, right. I have things as well so um you know Indianapolis did raise me you know that is where I'm from but it almost felt like I always felt like I was an outsider because even within the black community um I would always get told because of the one drop rule like oh you're just black but you're not black enough to sit at the table with us oh wow Mm-hmm. And so it was always this conflicting or there was always this choosing of you're either with them or you're with us. Mm-hmm. And even just with my major, you know, I always was interested in IR and foreign policy. And there was this notion of 
domestication or internationalism. Like, you know, why are you so, why are you always wanting to help out the refugees of Black people? We need more help. Oh, so it was wow. almost like a, yes, yeah, so it was always like this like guilt trip um, as well. And even before um, my, my fiance and I got together, it was always interesting because um, I was, I think I was always interested in dating outside my race because I've always had that example, even with a couple of my uncles that um, married outside their race as well. And so it was always like, whether it was the men in the family, they can always date outside the race. But because for me, because I have, because I'm black, um, it's like, I only can stick with one race. So it's like, mm. everyone, you're only allowed to date, you know, come out you, know, mm-hmm. you can't date anyone else. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think I've always had this sense of independence. So I would always say, well, you didn't bring home a black woman. So why are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, you know, like, who didn't marry, um, Kamai married, um, Misa. So why yeah. you know, are you saying this to me? Yeah. And even like more so now when my partner got introduced to our family, you know, being able to have this sense of self-empowerment to say, this is who I love. Mm-hmm. If you don't accept this, that's fine. You're just not going to be invited to the wedding because I'm not paying for you. <laughs> but, you know, just feeling um, empowered to stay true to yourself because that was one of the probably the hardest parts about being in the Midwest is that if you didn't fit this like cookie cutter notion of what it means to be Asian or what it means to be Black, especially in the university area, they would just be so quick to just disregard you. So it was really interesting when I was an undergrad because I really, really had to um, pave my own way. I just felt like when I went to school, it was only like a couple of majors to choose from. You're either going to choose nursing or um, any of the medical fields or maybe engineering um, or those fields. But when I did IR, you know, my family didn't support me. My family didn't believe in me. And, you know, it was to the point where I was homeless for a year, you know, and it wasn't until... Mm -hmm. I would just remember the days working three jobs, living in my car. Yeah. And then at the time I was um, working for the Indiana State House when um, um, Superintendent Glenda Risk was still over the Department of Education and Mike Pence was still our um, governor. I <laughs> I remember Secret Service used to take my parking spot. I used to get so mad because it was so cold. In the, you know, in the Midwest, the winters get really, really fast. So having to walk a little bit extra to, to, just to work. But I remember when my boss lost the election and the Republican Party took over. I remember I was out of an internship because the Republicans didn't want to keep me. But at that point, I didn't really care about political affiliation. I was just doing the class. You know, you have to do an internship as part of your, your program. But mm-hmm. I ended up getting hired on at the United Nations. So I worked for the UN uh, Department of Economic and Social Affairs. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was a really, really great experience, but having to come from a situation where you were just trying to figure out how you're gonna get your next meal to just having everything paid for in New York. Um, and then yeah. just being around like all these different diplomats. And it was just, it was such a great adjust. It was just a huge adjustment. And whether you're, uh, especially for those of us that are like second generation that have to like pave our own way, there was just a lot of advice I have to really, really seek outside help for it because I didn't get a lot of those resources from home. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. It, it's And it's really hard to juggle too, is like when you're, receiving messages from your community that you're not something even though you are and then on top of um, taking on the responsibility of you know being starting a career and going down your career path and not really having the the support or the resources that you really need yeah that's honestly been one of the um, hardest things to deal with it's like how do we talk about mental health on communities because they're so difficult I was really fortunate enough one of my best friends is 
is in mental health um, right now. So she's, um, you know, she was giving me advice as well. And I think what also helped too is um, before my uh, fiance worked in um, government technology, he actually worked in mental health too. So he was able to give me tools because I guess we don't realize how much trauma we really take on from our parents and our grandparents, whether it's from like body image issues Mm -hmm. to um, just trauma or just thinking that you're not good enough because you didn't start off with these resources. It was just so many like generational curses, like um, I myself and just others that share this identity had to kind of work through together. So I think I had to really find my own community, whether it's other Khmer people or uh, my best friends, actually, she's like Indian Jamaican, but it's kind of similar, but mm-hmm. just there's that come from other like, refugee demographics. Yeah. Yeah, I think especially like finding a support system even as a second gen child of refugees is really important to your even mental health well-being because sometimes our experiences like we feel really alone in them. And it's just like when we meet other people, we realize that like we're not alone in that. Yeah, and I think what's also really interesting, especially about the Southeast Asian dynamic, you have others that want to advocate for our community who don't really understand all the intricacies. Right. So, um, so for instance, like in DC, you know, you have so many people that focus on US ASEAN relations, which is great that you're interested, but then there's these, there's these statements, these talk tracks like, oh, I'm basically Khmer, I'm basically Vietnamese. I grew up in Little Saigon in California. Uh, and then I always say, but do you do you really know what our community struggles do? Do you yeah. understand? why the migration patterns leads to so many Southeast Asians not having the opportunities to go to school, mm-hmm. why there's high gang violence, why there's high teenage pregnancy, why there's why there's high suicide rates and why there's mm-hmm. resources. Right. And I think that one of the most um, troubling things about being a second generation is that, you know, you have others that want to speak on your experience, but don't really know, or they just choose not to really understand and go off by what they think they know. Can you elaborate on what you said? No, it's it's what's interesting is like there's people that are outside of the community, kind of like the notion of white splitting. Like, yeah, I have this complex that I I'm the expert because okay. I'm a, yeah. studied abroad in Asia. I may have done this, yeah. So I'm able to entire this entire community uh-huh. without really knowing what's going on. Oh yes, and they may not they may not have been at Temple. They may not been to the coding community centers. Okay, or they may not have really um talk to the elders to see like hey what was your experience like when you first came mm, to me okay yeah oh, okay so they're kind of just assuming what the needs are rather than actually exploring exactly the... okay got it yeah mm. yeah and and you said that you're seeing this in dc um mm-hmm. when it comes to like making policies yeah, whether it's making domestic policies or even like um, abroad making policies, whether it's within Southeast Asia as well. Um, I remember when I started the U.S. ASEAN Youth Council, and I get questions all the time, like, how did you come up with this? It's so groundbreaking. And I always tell this story. I remember going to my New Year in um, Stockton. And I remember I was walking around Temple and I remember seeing the gang task force. It was a lot of like police, police at the temple. And I look, so why are they here? I mean, we know why they're here, but it just, mm-hmm. we still see them on temple grounds because it's considered, you know, holy. And then I just remember feeling really sad. Like, mm. wow, you know, we can't even have a Kamai celebration for our new year without without it being trouble. And then just even looking at the area of Stockton, seeing as much poverty was within our Kamai community. 
And then I was thinking, I said, there has to be a way where we can show examples of Kamai leadership, kind of similar to what you're doing, Sophia, right, with these podcast series. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a way where we can show leadership of whether they're Khmer or other Southeast Asian individuals and in, in leadership positions that we don't typically see ourselves in. And how can we um, how we, can we communicate to the masses about what's going on in Southeast Asia that's not in like foreign policy or trade terms? Make it digestible. That's what I always tell um, policy leaders out here. I said, you know, not everyone's going to know what intellectual property protection mm-hmm. is. Not everyone's going to know what OECD is. You know, how can we put this out into the community because there's so much, you know, disinformation about there's so much lies on, you know, and it's hard to figure out what's truth and what's not unless you're here in DC getting like information from the, you know, exact agencies. Um, which, yeah, which is why I started the council. And, it, and as I kind of went, created that organization, I really, it really kind of started to explore like what it meant for me to be Cambodian American as well. Um, I think one of the most eye-opening experiences that I personally had was um, for Black History Month, we had an event on Black Americans in Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. their contributions. And on, on our event, we had um, U.S. Ambassador Charles Ray. He was the first um, African-American to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Cambodia. And he was talking about his experience being in Southeast Asia, how they thought that he wasn't running the U.S. embassy because he was Black, but he actually started the embassy in Hanoi as well. He actually founded it and, you know, the State Department put him on. And he was also in the IC, the intelligence community. So he talked about his role in dealing with the Chinese investments. Um, and then the other person that we had on the um, on the event was uh, Mr. Mark Neely from the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. So he deals with more of like um, U.S. businesses in Southeast Asia. And, you know, he's the vice president right now, and he's, you know, one of the only Black men at, in ASEAN. So it makes me realize, too, like, why don't we hear about these narratives about Black Americans serving in Asia? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, oh, there's a big debate on who's going to serve to China. And now, you know, now then you go into colorism, like, why is it that we have this fascination with proximity to whiteness when you have all this talent, especially in our community, you know, there is this notion that if you're Khmer Chinese, you're smart, you're great, you're beautiful, but, you know, what's wrong with being, you know, indigenous Khmer? What's mm-hmm. wrong with being yep. So I really had to explore that within myself as I was kind of taking my own personal journey. Mm. Yeah. You said that it had helped you reckon with your own Cambodianness, and is it because of just seeing the way that um, maybe colorism was playing a part in, in like, foreign policy but also um just the representation yeah honestly i really do think it was the representation piece mm-hmm. of it as well because most of the other Khmer people that i have met in the foreign policy space unless they're actually from cambodia um most of them are of chinese descent so a lot of times when i'm in these rooms you know some of the other Khmer people will say things to me like you don't look my mm. you more come out you know they'll say you know crazy outlandish things but if anything, I learned that I had to, it's not about pleasing what I look like or what I do to mm-hmm. other people, it's about being happy within myself, you know, and being confident in my own skill sets. Right. And so, yeah, so even seeing Kamala Harris um, embracing her Indian roots or um, even seeing, you know, um, you know, Naomi Osaka or seeing Ariana, um, not, um, I can't think of her name right now, but so one of, she was one of the first, um, Asian and Black uh, winners in Japan. Can't think of her name right now. But, you know, mm-hmm. seeing 
individuals like that who really embrace themselves fully and not choosing a side. I think that's what really led me to really kind of exploring it more because um, I got, I, it got to a point where I got tired of just hearing all the negativity that I was hearing. And I'm like, you know, I just need to separate myself because obviously this isn't helping me. This yeah. isn't helping my own mental state. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you've been just being pulled side to side on with, with being biracial and you're kind of like, well, I'm tired of being pulled apart. Like this, this is who I am. Right. Right. And I think what's also interesting too, is that, you know, I also, yeah, I got tired of being pulled. I also got tired of narratives mm. being placed on me because yeah. um, even within our families, there's so much toxicity, you know, with all the gender inequalities of like, you know, why is it that Cambodian girls have to be the only ones helping cook dinner or clean and you're not seeing your cousins do it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's interesting because it's like the ones that were always deemed as not worthy or not smart enough we're the ones that are actually bringing prosperity and trying to help people out in our family and even just having difficult conversations with, you know, our parents when it's, that's not, not been the present before has been also interesting as well. But I also had to tell myself, you know, this is my life and this is how I decided to do it. But I also learned that being Cambodian is kind of what you make of it. So mm-hmm. it did personally was um, once I moved away, I just, you know, we, we both teach classes on speaking Khmer, learning how to read and write, but also just knowing the traditional stuff too, because something that I think isn't talked about is that, you know, you have a, well, it's not talked about as much, but I've just noticed that there's a lot of Cambodian people who don't want to be Cambodian, that literally try to shun away from their culture. And whenever I try to ask questions in my family, there's always this like, oh, well, we're American now, you know, mm. this is what we're going to move towards. So yeah. I just took it upon myself and I just started learning how to cook my dishes. Mm-hmm. I learned how to cook slamachu yun. I learned how to cook everything else. And even now that um, wedding planning, even learning how to plan a traditional Khmer Vietnamese wedding, you know, um, it's definitely wedding planning in itself is a feat, but <laughs> also just trying to get the resources is another journey. But one thing I will say about the Khmer community is that there are a couple of gems. There are great people that yeah. are willing to help give you the resources so I think that's one thing that's definitely helped me too in my identity piece Mm, yeah yeah finding people who um can support you along the way and be a part of your network yeah and I think what's also um interesting too is like also just kind of like educating those around you and even the ones even like your partner is kind of like about your struggles. I remember I had uh, John, um, I had him watch a documentary called Good Hair by Chris Rock. And it talked about like the texturism within mm-hmm. the black community as well. And I, um, I actually have a friend, She actually, she's actually Kamai. She started the natural hair move within the Asian community called Asian Pacific Islander Curls. And I remember seeing this, I'm like, oh, this is so great. Being able to, to be fully your authentic self, but um, teaching, <laughs> I remember I was teaching John, like, this is how we have to take care of our hair. Mm-hmm. This is the shampoos we have to buy. And it's just um, little things like that, even within the black community that he had to like, like um, different nuances as well um but you know like I said too I think one thing that also helped me was also just kind of researching like history and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. knowing what's in your back or uh, knowing who's to, in your ancestral background as well has been um super helpful um I do have an uncle that um also pledged alpha within the same fraternity as Dr. King so just learning that you know you have a couple of family members that contributed to the civil rights movement in the 70s is also wow. kind of a, a sense of self-pride as mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, your African-American side? Yeah. Um, so my father's family, they're actually originally from Louisiana. So we're actually French Creole, but the only person that spoke Creole was my grandmother. So by the, but by the time that like my father and my aunts and uncles had a wanting to learn it, it was like when they were a lot older. So like the rest of our cousins, like we never really got a chance to learn about it. But um, you know, my African-American side is definitely interesting because um, like I said, uh, I, I do have a stepfather too and my stepfather is also Creole as well. Mm-hmm. Roots, but um, what's interesting about both of my, like both of my father's families is that they're very, they're polar opposites. So my stepfather's family, they're very, very um, strict Roman Catholics very by the book, very traditional. My grandpa went to work, my dad went to work, and typically my, well, my mom didn't, but like my grandmother on my stepdad's side, and then um, my aunts would be like stay-at-home moms. So it was like that traditional narrative. On my biological father's side, that's wild. (laughs) I have have three brothers and sisters. Two of them are full, two of them are full come out, the other one's half Mexican, and it's there's there's definitely a lot of generational trauma yeah. of the family and I literally had to remove myself which is a lot of the reason why I don't talk about it but mm-hmm. it was just so much toxicity a lot of high poverty a lot of um, mm. a lot of negativity a lot of abuse that never really got resolved or wants to be addressed. Um, I know my grandfather died when my father was very, very young, which probably contributed to a lot of narcissistic traits um, growing up. And then, you know, and then there was a lot of mistreatment towards my mother too, because she was Khmer. My my mom speaks English pretty, pretty well, but my mom does have a very thick Cambodian accent. So um, there was a lot of close mindedness being put towards her. My baby sister and I do get racially discriminated for being um, mixed race as well. And what's interesting too, is the same notion as we're allowed to torment and abuse you, but you just take it. So um, I think that was something that I really, really had to learn how to deal with as an adult mm. and learn how to go to therapy for. Um, what's also interesting is it was that, that same mindset, but this whole mindset of but you're going to be the one to save our family. We're going to treat you how we want to treat you, but we deserve to have all your money once you become rich and famous. And so, Mm. like I said, I I definitely had um, to remove myself because it was literally driving me crazy. Mm. But, you know, once the homeless to Harvard um, news article came out for myself, that's when, that's when, um, that's when a lot of things that came to light, that's when a lot of animosity was shown. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't let that deter me. I didn't let, you know, what my father's background was define me. Um, I think a lot of things too, within mental health that I also had to deal with too, is that because uh, my parents got divorced, a lot of uh, my, my father is still very much in love with my mother and my mother went through a lot of ungodly abuse that I won't speak mm-hmm. of that I witnessed. But a lot, the abuse actually turned towards me since I was very young. And so I just remember begging my mother, I was like, I don't want to see that side of the family, please. And something that I want to take probably later on when I have kids is um, not anytime soon, but 
you know, later on Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, when a child says, please stop, I can't take it, or I don't want to be around them, like this isn't good, not only for my mental health, um, you know, I just think parents should listen to their kids in situations like that, not forcing your kid to just, if there's a family member they don't get along with, force them to hug someone when they're not treating them kindly, you know, because those words that the kids hear at such a young age, whether it's about them not being black enough, you know, hair is not you know, you have white hair, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to do some, you know what I mean? Like those things stay with you for a very yes. long time. Yeah. And what's similar, kind of like the similar narrative, not wanting to be Cambodian that, you know, I had, I had similar situations where I had issues coming in terms of what it means to be black because I didn't have any positive. Right. Right. On me. Yeah. Um, and it was very hard. So like a lot of times, yeah, I was at a crossroads because I had, I've always had very strong Asian male role models around me but the, you know it wasn't until my stepdad came around I really didn't and then his you know then obviously his brothers I really didn't have like great role models around me you know there was, there was a lot of misogyny that I saw a lot of you know beating on women a mm-hmm. lot of you know um, cheating and walking out on marriages there's a lot of stuff that I saw and a lot of negativity and I remember at a young age thinking like this can't be real life mm. <laughs> Um, it was to the point where it's like going to a family's house was just having to mentally prepare yourself or having to come up with mantras saying that no matter what they said, this is what I was as a person. And that's not a way someone should go in to visit their family. No, no. Yeah. And if you're not modeled like what it means to have a positive racial identity with everyone around you, then like you're going to always question what it means for you to be black or what it means for you to be part part of that family or part of that culture yeah and I think what's also what was most difficult too especially during the period when I was homeless was having like elders on my African-American side of the family call me names that were outside of what my mother gave me that were very very negative you know like I'm not gonna sugarcoat it did I go through an ungodly amount of abuse oh absolutely Mm. absolutely but you know I started my own healing journey I knew what I wanted in life. I know not everyone may have that option, but like I knew that what I wanted was not in the Midwest. And if it meant that I did not have to talk to the rest of my family to make sure that I was okay, that I, I had to make that decision. Yeah. Mm. But I didn't, like I said, I didn't let that define me. And I knew that the purpose that I served and once I found my passion, it was so much greater because once I once I left the Midwest, the opportunities that opened up to me after, you know, you kind of make it through like the storm, it was things that my, my family can't even, can't even fathom or understand. You know, I remember, you know, my family, some of my family's never even, I mean, they've been to Cambodia, obviously, but like some of my family's never been to Europe or they've never been to any other country outside of Asia or even knew what some of the international organizations that I worked with are and having to explain to them. But What's also interesting too is if I am around them and they, if they are portraying this these um, toxic notions and trying to compare me to their sons, I have to tell myself too, I'm not here for their approval. And the other conversation I had, my, my partner and I had to have with you know parents were, we're not spending a thousand dollars to come to Indianapolis to be treated badly because that's a trip to Jamaica mm-hmm. or Mexico. Yeah. And all, you know, so 
it's like, you know, we work hard for our money, you know, being out on the, you know, whether it's Chicago or, or in the East Coast or West Coast, it's, it's expensive to live out here and having these candid conversations saying, you know, this is what we're willing, putting boundaries up and yes. making people abide mm-hmm. by them. That's been a journey within itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's always that cultural piece of like comparing kids to other kids and just putting mm-hmm. people against each other. And it's just, it's not healthy and it's not sustainable. Yeah. And I think, I feel like comparing children also brings up this um, unofficial like beef that doesn't need to happen between family members. No. Because honest, I really don't, I mean, as I say, I don't care what my family members are doing, but. I want to be supportive, but most of the time I'm focused on myself. Like, how can I be a better person? Mm-hmm. How can I heal? And how can I, you know, push forward towards my personal goals? And I just wish there was, you know, more support from the ones that are supposed to have it for you. Because, you know, sometimes it's a little um, disappointing having to um, connect or having to get resources from people from the most unlikely sources. But it's also still a blessing within itself. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. yeah thanks for sharing that and being really vulnerable with your story oh yeah no yeah. it's fine like I don't I don't mind sharing well for one it's already public it's public <laughs> <laughs> prior to the, uh, podcast but you know I know these narratives matter because like I said too um with all of our families, whether you're client or not we all came to this country because of the plethora of resources that we have mm-hmm. but stories matter because you don't know who needs to hear this, Mm. you know, to make it towards their goals or their passions, you know? Mm. Um, Sorry, it's like thunderstormy here. (laughs) That's okay. But, you know, you know, our parents, you hear our parents or our grandparents' war stories about how they made it in the U.S. and um, it just doesn't stop with them for our struggle. You know, it just keeps kind of passing on. So eventually one person, or not one person, but someone in the line has to say like, hey, these toxic traits are literally inhibiting us from being, uh, from reaching our fullest potential. So let's find a way to come in terms with this. Yeah. Yeah. And along the way, becoming a cycle breaker yeah, from, from, from all that generational trauma that has been passed down. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. And how do you continue to celebrate who you are? Oh yeah. So I, Mm. hmm. That's a good question. Um, for one, I'm a big believer in self-care. Mm-hmm. So, um, especially as we get older, you know, things may not move as, as nicely as they normally do. But <laughs> so I'm a big believer in yeah, self-care, like, you know, getting massages. I personally like to get my nails done, but um, <laughs> things like that. Um, but other things I like to do, too, is just, you know, once you find your support system, like having scheduled happy hours or just having um, or just partaking in um new up a new whether it's a new opportunity or just new adventures you know once I moved out here to DC um there's so many there's so much things to do and I I always just try to push myself on um doing things that's never been done before I know my partner and I we scheduled um, our little mini celebration to go skydiving like the indoor skydiving yeah uh, (laughs) places or um or just trying to take trips once uh COVID permits but um, yeah, just things like that, or just doing nothing. That's actually one of the favorite opportunities, (laughs) just sitting and relaxing and just meditating and just, um, kind of reflecting and being grateful of 
whether I mean whether they, they happened, you know, when they when situations do occur and what you learn from them because you're never the same person, you know. Yeah, and those are all really important things. Is and so engaging in self care is like um, really helpful and can really foster that inner and the inner work too. Yeah, and I think what's also um, helpful too is just finding a mental health professional that that you really click with mm-hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know like with one of my friends, like you know, she definitely gives me a lot of advice. But I think one thing that helped me was definitely really going to therapy. I I do in a way consider. It, I know sometimes therapy there are moments that are a little bit difficult, but you know, just having someone who can be your personal coach and give you the tools that you need to make um, coping with life a lot easier. That's definitely really helped me as well. Mm, Especially when you're going into um, a new environment. I think when I first got into IR, (laughs) I don't want to say I was bullied because I feel like when you're bullied, you're not, you're kind of like, I mean, I know we have all insecurity, but I never really wanted to change myself. But having to be around a lot of especially a lot of rich Asians that were like children of diplomats from like the especially the top tier countries like being around the really rich from Japan and every and um like Saudi Arabia and everything well the Saudis are nice but um just being around that environment I had to really to celebrate myself I literally had to keep saying these mantras like I'm worthy I worked hard for this I'm allowed to be in this space like having to give yourself permission to either be in this be in the space and then once whatever you're done is completed and being able to just celebrate and say, see, this is why, you know, you're allowed to be in this space because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Therapy is great for everyone, no matter mm-hmm. where you are in your journey. Yeah. yeah. And what do you most love about your culture or um, your ethnicities? I think say for both of them, it's just, um, I think mostly two things for one, it's resilience. Mm-hmm. Is even with all these obstacles, all these barriers and everything, just being able to um, to really just push against the grain and say, yeah, I have these goals and no matter what, I'm just going to keep going. And then the second one is just innovation, even just seeing how um, whether, okay, when it comes to the United States and seeing like how much um, African-Americans really contributed, whether it's you know, the invention of the stoplight or building of the White House or even the creation of peanut butter, Mm -hmm. just seeing how much we really contributed both to the world and on the global scale. But even when you go to Cambodia and seeing just the talent that we have on, especially when we rebuild after after the Khmer Rouge, it's remarkable. And then even seeing the new, newer generations of Cambodian Americans, you know, like, we're literally tackling issues and finding solutions to things that haven't really been addressed until after the war. And I think that's yeah. something I love about being, you know, Cambodian and Black. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you you have really two identities that have, have different um, obstacles and different ways that they've been oppressed. And, and you're kind of molding the two to see how you can um grow and also just what you can take from each each side and take it with you forward exactly yes yeah is there anything else that you'd like to share 
No, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, um, I just, I really, definitely really appreciated the opportunity just to share my story. Like, hopefully I can provide some words of insight and inspiration to someone because I, I definitely understand what it means to be in a dark place. You mm. just need uh, a light at the, to find a, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel. So um, definitely for anyone that's going through any mental health or trying to break the generational curses, you know, you'll definitely do it. It takes some time, but, you mm-hmm. know, one step at a time. Yeah. Thank you for all that you share. Of course. Thank you.